0: May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you've always thought that the parables of Jesus were something akin to grandma's freshly baked cookies, you could not be more wrong. The parables of Jesus were often enigmatic, misunderstood, and wrongly interpreted, um, not unlike they are today, but what they were not meant to do is to stir you in a sentimental insides like some warm oatmeal or something like that. They were pointed, the parables of Jesus, and accusatory. Sometimes they were sharp as a knife. They weren't passive-aggressive, but they were so much so uh, that, that people would walk away saying, so what you're saying is, with a sort of offended kind of sensibility, Jesus tells several parables in the 21st and 22nd chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. And he tells them knowing that there are certain people standing around listening. In the audience, there are a group of people that we call, and they were called then, Pharisees. People who were re- well respected. We hear the word Pharisees and we sort of think bad guys. You know, they are the um the jokers to to the Batman, you know, or or uh, Lex Luthor to Superman, you know, the, the enemies, the, the the villains. They weren't the villains. They weren't the villains at all. They're very traditional, conventional, conspicuously religious people. They um they wore the garb of an outwardly religious person. They were immediately recognized in their community as being Pious, devout, uh, sincere, conspicuously devout, and the Pharisees were um, very—they were very angry about the Roman occupation of Israel. They lived in an occupied country, but even the Romans respected the Pharisees despite their their um, repulsion. By Rome, So Jesus shows up. There are these people called Pharisees in the crowd. He knows they're listening and he tells three parables in a row directed straight at them. The first one was of a man who had two sons. The man says to one son, go do this chore. The son says, no way. I'm not going to do it. And he walks away and he feels guilty and he goes and he does what he was asked to do. And the second son says, of course, dad, I'd be delighted to do so. And he walks off with no intention of doing what he had said he was going to do at all. Jesus' question, of course, was which is the better son. But the, the, the point of the parable is pointed directly at the Pharisees. They have all the appearance of doing what's right, but none of the internal intention of doing it. Outwardly, they look like they're doing what's right, but inwardly, they're not. And for this little parable, they, had no- they um, nominated Jesus to be Preacher of the Year. Not really, they didn't at all, Now. <gasps> He tells a second parable. This parable was about these uh, tenant farmers who wanted to kill the owner and take the property for themselves. The point of this parable, of course, was Jesus was saying that the Pharisees, these religious, conspicuous, very traditional people, had hijacked Judaism. And for this one, they wanted to buy him a gold watch, but no, not really. Um, The third one, he told, was of a, a king who wanted to throw a wedding banquet for his daughter. And he invited people to come, and the people he invited didn't want to come. And this one was told to the Pharisees as well. He was saying, Jesus was, that they were no more ready to live under the rule of God than anyone else in their society. In fact, they were thoroughly unprepared to live under the rule of God. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back. You can't keep insulting people without expecting them to sometime get mad at you. I mean, eventually it's going to happen. And Jesus has done this. He has insulted their sensibilities one too many times. In fact, what he has said in these three parables is that they are no more ready to live under the rule of God than your garden variety thieves and murderers. This was, this was deeply offensive. Deeply, deeply offensive. Think about it for just a minute. They, they are the epitome of orthodox Judaism. Everything about them screams devotion to God. And Jesus is saying to them, you've missed the point. You've missed it entirely. And they were infuriated by it. I kind of think I might have been infuriated by it. And I know many of you well enough to know that you might have been infuriated by somebody saying this to us. It's wrong. What do you mean to tell me, Jesus, that I'm the one who's not living right? What do you mean to say that I'm the one who's on the highway to hell? I'm going to avoid the whole ACDC bon Scott reference right here, but know that I could have if I wanted to. What do you mean to say that I am the one who's not living right? Dave, you got that one, didn't you? You saw that. I see that. I am and have been living this life that is fully devoted to God. Everything about their appearance screamed devotion. Let me, give you, let me give you a few things. A traditional Pharisee would wear 18 separate garments of clothing. They were all theologically intentional. Every garment of clothing he put on every day, and they were always he's, would on every day 18 different garments to scream his devotion to God. He would wear a leather strap around his arm that would hold a little box on his hand. Another leather strap around his head that would hold a little box on his head. Do you know what was in these little boxes? Bible verses. Bible verses, for crying out loud. They would have prayer shawls, these shawls that, that, that were, were you know, visible and, and meant to be uh, aids to prayer, like carrying a rosary might be for somebody. They, they would wear these and they would broaden the sides of them so they would become very visible to everybody who would see it. They would pray out loud in the marketplace. Stopping and praying on the street corner, praying for the people who are, you know, praying to God. Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like these people over here. And they would say it out loud. They were such careful observers of the Sabbath that they wouldn't even light a fire, lest it be considered work. They wouldn't speak to a woman in public, not even one's wife or mother, lest they might be confused as a womanizer. These people, these people who have this strict adherence to devotion, they were even called people of the book because of their devotion to the Bible. These are the ones Jesus says you're no more ready to live under God's rule than the garden variety thieves, prostitutes, and murderers that live in your communities. And it had to be shocking, it had to be it had to be infuriating. I mean they not they wore their religion on their shirt sleeve Literally, I mean, not, not metaphorically or hyperbolically, but, but literally they wore it on their shirt sleeve. I, I, I don't know how to contrast that to somebody today. I mean, maybe they wear a big giant cross like I do, you know. Um, I don't know, maybe they carry a big fat Bible or a prayer book, you know. You've seen a family that bows their head for prayer in a restaurant, you know, outwardly religious. Everything about them screams devotion. And Jesus is saying these people in his community... Our sort of people, our kind of people, were not ready to live under the kingdom and rule of God. They had missed the point. You can imagine that they were angry. That they were so angry that they had to stop him. They, this had to be finished. We, we can't go on like this. They can't have this itinerant preacher going around and embarrassing us at every stop and turn. We need to put him out of this situation. Get him out of the game, as it were. And so they set up a trap. It was a clever trap. They want to trap Jesus between religion and politics. He's either going to be a martyr or he's going to be a hypocrite. Either way, he's out of our hair. And so they set up this nice little trap. They do what, um, what religious professionals always do. We find seminary students. <laughs> Somebody who's not quite, you know, that they have no idea what they're getting into. So that the trap fails, it doesn't backfire on you. So you find the right people. You find some seminary students and you hook them up with some politicians. They're called Herodians in the text. Get them together and say, you know, the seminary students, you're going to ask Jesus this question. And, and and the politicians are going to be standing there ready to pounce. But you never go into a thing like this just straight on, do you? I mean, that would be bad form, right? You butter up your 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 target first, right? I mean, you go up to him and you say, "Gee whiz, Jesus! I mean, what a great fellow you are. We are so impressed by you." Let me let me read verse fifteen for you again. Twenty two fifteen. The Pharisees went and plot, plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, their seminary students, along with the Herodians, the politicians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. True, truthfully. I mean, it's getting a little redundant, isn't it? And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Oh, Jesus, you are, you are so, oh, we, we love you. We think you're awesome. We are so enamored by you. Just tell us this one thing. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? This is the pinch, right? This is between religion and politics here. Remember, occupied country. Romans are hated. This is a powder keg ready to explode. Less than 50 years after Jesus' death, it actually does explode. There is a revolution where people in Israel try to literally force the Romans out by force. Starts a war. Jerusalem's destroyed the temple's destroyed it's, it's an awful mess but here is Jesus we're going to sit you on top of this powder keg and now answer this question only it doesn't quite work that way Jesus doesn't have to be clairvoyant to know that they're up to something I mean you would recognize that You know, it would be immediately evident that you're put between a rock and a hard place and so he says give me a coin may I borrow a coin I find it interesting that he doesn't have one of his own. You know that he doesn't reach into his pocket and say, "Here, let me show you this coin I have." Or, "Here, here, fellows, give me a coin." He, he rather says to the people out there, "You give me a coin, right? Can I borrow one from you?" And they pull it out, and he says, "Whose image is this?" And literally, what is written upon it? Whose image? What's written there? Now, it seems really clever from us, just from a twenty-first century perspective looking back and seeing this but it actually is even more clever than you realize because there are echoes there are echoes people who live in a world that is where where the bible is the literature that drives the discourse of conversation when jesus says what image image that is going to echo genesis chapter 1 verse 26 in everybody's mind a very important text in their thinking whose image God said, let us make humankind in our image and after our likeness. Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? What's written upon it? There's another echo. What's written upon it is going to come from Jeremiah. I mean these this, these were texts that were, were passed around among religious conservatives and, and theologically astute persons all the time. Jeremiah thirty one, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah, and I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. Whose image is on the coin? What's it say on that? Oh, it's Caesar's image. It says it's Caesar's God, or whatever. Well, good. Give it back to him. <laughs> you know, this is going to be painful, doesn't it? Well, give it back to him. Well, that means I can't have it any longer. Yeah, give it back to him. And give to God the things that belong to God. You see, God wants something too. Yeah, the government wants your money. <laughs> give it back to him. But give to God the thing that belongs to God. He wants the things that belong to him. He wants the things that bear his image. That are stamped with his words upon them. What are the things that are bear his image and stamped with his words upon them? Well, you know, you're way ahead of me. You're the smartest people I know. You're, yeah, it's you and me, isn't it? He wants us. And not just us. He wants everyone. Because every human being bears the image of God. Every human being bears the likeness of God. And upon every human being, God has written His, his ownership that, that we belong to Him. Now, this is a slightly even more pointed than we could imagine... Because Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, not only are you to give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, you're to give God the things that belong to God, and you have failed in this area. You have failed here. This is the primary point where you're missing it. Not in your 18 layers of clothes, not in your wearing your Bible verses, all very well and good. But you're missing the point. You're missing the entire point. The Pharisees, these people who had allowed Scripture, the Bible, to dictate their clothing... Their calendar, their social lives, their friendships, their shopping patterns, their marital relationships. They allowed the Bible to stretch all this, and Jesus says, you still miss it. You're still missing the point. I read an article um, just recently called, The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy in the Western World. Less than 50% of Americans, this author said, can name the four Gospels, less than 50%. 60% of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% of all Americans believe God helps those who help themselves is a verse from the Bible. It's not, in case you were sitting there wondering. Because 81% of church-going people in the United States believe the same. Just 1% better. A majority of the people in America believe that the Bible teaches the most important thing in life is to take care of one's family. No, it's not. (laughs) A Barnabal indicated, this author says, that 12%, I love this one, 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. (laughs) Isn't that precious? Um, Over half of the high school graduating seniors believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And a considerable number of the respondents to one poll indicated that they believe the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. I'm not saying that we need to do better for Bible trivia games. I'm saying that we're failing our culture. Our culture is, fa- is, be- is being destroyed, not because some rogue persons out there are, are, are spreading evil. That's certainly happening. It's failing because we're failing as the church in mission. We are failing in mission to, to, to communicate the gospel faithfully to our culture and to our, to our world. The kingdom of God will not come to this country or any country by virtue of a vote. Let that sink in for just a minute. It's not going to come to this country or any country by virtue of a vote. It's going to come because we are engaged in God's mission in the world. That we have taken up what God wants us to do to reconcile men and women, boys and girls to him. The gospel will come to our country and to our world in the same way that Patrick and his band of of missionaries took it to Ireland. The same way that Aidan and Columba and St. Augustine took it to the English. The way that Hudson Taylor took it to the Chinese. The gospel will come to our country because we, men and women who have dedicated ourselves to Jesus Christ, have taken upon ourselves this mission as our own. That we are doing God's work in the world. That we have a clear objective. That we have a firm commitment and, and a and a workable strategy. We're doing these things. I saw a film um, uh, several years ago called The Great Raid. If you like um if you like war films, this is this is it. Okay. If you don't don't watch it. But um, this movie is about uh, about these uh, group of army rangers during the Second World War who went into the Philippines as the, as, as the, as the Pacific Theater was, was winding down. It was pretty obvious what was going to happen. There were all these uh, concentration camps and POW camps in the Philippines. And many of them uh, were the, the prisoners, the American and British prisoners, were executed just as the enemy was leaving. They, so they would kill all the prisoners and then flee and leave the, the, the camp. And so here you have an American beachhead, and they're beginning to, they, they want to rescue these POWs before they're murdered, before the enemy can can escape. And so they send these rangers in undercover. They go right through enemy territory and find their way to the prisons in order to try to liberate these prisoners. What I'm thrilled with, when I watch this film, I was was reading a book that was a a really important mission book at the same time. So I'm reading the book, and then I, I get finished, and I watch this film. They seem to be completely, you know, unrelated events. But in in my mind, it, it solidified it because here's what the Rangers did: they 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 got rid of everything that was superfluous to their mission. I mean, they got rid of a lot of things they would like to have taken with them, you know, extra water canteens. They, they got rid of ammunition. They went as light as they could go, single weapon. They even decided they couldn't take helmets. Helmets were too clunky. They were too noisy. Get rid of them. Everything that was even self-defense because they had one mission to liberate these camps and anything that got in the way. They went right past. They didn't engage enemy. They went right past them because they had a mission which was to liberate people from these POW camps. I thought about how how, how fitting a metaphor that is for the church. What if we didn't get distracted by every enemy target around us but we kept... Our, our heart and our soul about the mission that we have. That we pursued that mission with, with, with such a vigor and an intensity that we, we we had a clear objective and a clear strategy. That we wouldn't even take along things that were self-defensive and protective. But we'd give up ourselves entirely for the sake of the mission. You know, I think when our piety places what we do for ourselves at the top of the list, we are never more like Pharisees of the first century. And whenever we place the mission, God's work in the world, at the top of our list, we are never more like Jesus. The question we have to answer is which one do we want to be? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.